What soul signs up for that journey? What soul signs up to say, yes, put me in a body that at 18 months of age is going to suddenly lose verbal skills and no longer be able to look my mother in the eye and be overwhelmed emotionally and physically and my neural inputs be completely overwhelmed for the years until society comes around me and begins to support my healing journey into my role. They can see their role prospectively. They're signing up for that journey. How is it possible for a parent of a child with autism to become the superhero their child needs now? I'm Len. And I'm Cass. When our son was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism, we went all in. We spent over a decade learning everything we could on how we could transform to help our son thrive. And guess what? He's doing it. This year, he ran for class president. Each week on this podcast, we will be sharing the secrets needed for you to become the superhero your child needs. If you want to learn how to tap into your innate superpowers to help your child thrive, visit AutismParentingSecrets.com. Hey guys, it's Cass. I am so excited you are here. A few weeks ago, we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. It was so powerful. And the good news is this is part one. And there is a second part that will air next week. Dr. Zach is truly a light for humanity and the wisdom and inspiration he shares in this discussion will truly touch your heart. It's a message that everyone needs to hear. So please share this conversation with others. This will change the way you look at autism forever. And the secret this week is we need autism. Hello and welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Uh, This is a extremely special episode because Katz and I created this podcast for parents of a child with autism, but we didn't create it because we wanted people just to listen to us and what we think. Our goal was to bring in the the thought leaders and the true sources of inspiration out there who are doing amazing work. And there is nobody who fits that bill. I mean, the person we're talking today is on the top of that list. And we're just so deeply honored to have Dr. Zach Bush join us to be able to spread you know, his message to share his insights and uh, his bio. If you go to ZachBushMD.com, you will see his bio. You will see his long resume. I'm just going to boil it down to the essentials. First and foremost, this man is just a beautiful human being. Secondly, he happens to be a triple board certified medical doctor with a real deep knowledge and expertise. And on top of that, he is such a change agent. He is not out there talking and putting theory out there, he is actually being the change and starting initiatives and not-for-profit and really kind of just putting the power back into all of us to be able to be the change that we want to see in the world. So he's got a, a long number of topics that he can go deep on and really share phenomenal insights. And for us, though, he knows as well as anyone we've met, the particular challenges that parents can face you know, in bringing in a child and just setting them up for success and overall wellness. So we're going to go and cover a lot of topics today, and we're going to let Dr. Zach talk, but we just couldn't be more thrilled to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Zach. So glad to be with both of you and the whole audience. It's just a real thrill. We're just excited. And I just, the one thing that I know, having heard you speak many times, is there's something like 7 billion 
people here at the same time. And I do think that our kids, kids with diagnoses like autism, are truly here to teach us. That is a beautiful place to begin. The idea of a life being the animation of a body from a a long-lived soul is really fascinating to me. Certainly, we've built thousands of years of religious philosophy, and, and we've been peering into this with all of human effort for so long now, trying to figure out what is spirituality, what what is the soul, what is trying to be expressed through these human lives that we live. And when you look at the scale of humanity uh, today, it's like you say, 7.8 billion souls globally. Uh, it's a just a stunning number. It's very hard to wrap your mind around the concept of of a thousand million, but to see of 7,000 million people. And it's one of the things that I was struck with again just last night over dinner with my wife. We were in a restaurant we've never been in, this Turkish restaurant, and they had this whole live video of streetscapes of of Istanbul. And and here's this incredible city, incredible history to it. And they have thousands of years of architecture and culture. and, And I've never been there. And look at all the people walking around that I've never met and look at them all on purpose and look at them all touching each other and look at the kids holding their parents' hands and look at the elders, you know, hugging the young woman on the street. And it's just, I often wish that just for a split second in the day, we could glimpse the power of 7.8 billion souls in alignment on a planet instantaneously. And that gives me a sense of the potential of humanity as much as it also, of course, underlines our, our destructive capacity. And so with the uh, maelstrom that we've been over the last thousands of years, which is this consumptive, destructive, kind of you know empire-building concept of human society, human consciousness that we need to take over, we need to fight against the microbiome, we need to fight off the germs, we need to fight off the big animals, we need to kill everything that's larger than us, we don't get killed. This kind of fight or flight, behavior of the human journey has been so ingrained in us. And so now when we look at this moment of the the birth of a new millennia, with this next century being this first step towards a new possibility, and then we realize that there's indigenous wisdoms that have run for many of them for 600 to multiple thousands of years that have been predicting this moment, that there would be a cataclysmic change on the planet and within humanity at this moment. And that would be a transition from a species that has been going in in vicious cycles to a species that's flying straight for the first time. And I get very excited to know that indigenous wisdoms have seen this hope and have seen the possibility of this. And so when we take a look at that moment, when we start to close our eyes and float above the stress within our homes, within our families, maybe they're psychosocial stressors, economic stressors, health stressors. If we just take a deep breath at the end of 2020 here and float above that for a moment with your eyes closed and look down at your family and float up a little higher, look down at the block that you live in and then the community you live in, the city, float up high enough so that you can see the United States or Australia or Canada or Mexico or Europe, wherever you're listening from, and then float up higher to that, that stratospheric level where you can see that, that thin blue line that separates Earth from the dark, vast expanse of vacuum space. And that thin blue line we back up from again and we step into the darkness of space. It's frigid cold there. there there's no impact of solar radiation there for warmth. It's near absolute zero. 
you would die instantaneously, frozen like an ice cube if you weren't protected by a heated space in there. And so our astronauts floating out in space right now, our astronauts at the International Space Station, they're looking down on this, this fragile Earth right now. And in that, we can start to see the patterns of events and start to make a different sense out of them, and autism being one of them. Autism now, you know, moving from one in th- one in five thousand kids to one in thirty kids over the last you know forty fifty years. What is that telling us? It's it's telling us that this is what we need as a species. We need autism. We need this to be part of the collective consciousness. With one in thirty kids, you know, remember we've got three hundred million people just in the United States. But with one in thirty kids, you know, coming into this world, even if things plateaued right now, and and we were still at one in thirty in twenty years from now. We're likely to be at one in three, but even if we just stopped at one in 30, those children will be the, the population of the United States. And so at that point, you know, you're looking at, you know, over a million children, potentially 10 million, you know, in the United States with, who are now adults with autism spectrum disorder. Why do we need that? And we clearly do because it's what's happened. This is our journey. The path has already been proven. And so we need autism in our environment. And so why? We can dive deep into that idea as to all the layers of why autism, what is it showing us about toxicity of our behaviors, our collective consumer behavior, our collective industrial behavior, our collective technologic behavior. But deeper than that, uh, the why, it's the who for me for first. Like who, what soul signs up for that journey? What soul signs up? to say, yes, put me in a body that at 18 months of age is going to suddenly lose verbal skills and no longer be able to look my mother in the eye and be overwhelmed emotionally and, and physically and my neural inputs be completely overwhelmed for the years until society comes around me and begins to support my healing journey into my role. They can see their role prospectively. They're signing up for that journey. Those are... And so I look at my own path and I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that my soul didn't have to pick that courageous journey. Uh, my soul had such an easy journey. And I feel a huge opportunity to express more grace and pour more resources into these souls and children for the ease that I've had. And then if we back up a little further and say, what is the soul that jumps into a mother that will have an autistic child? How courageous is that journey? How courageous is the soul that jumps into the, the father that will see his family taken to the brink of, of bankruptcy and often into bankruptcy out of the healthcare costs and the, the lack of support from the social structures at hand, the lack of education? Who jumps into the bodies of the grandparents of that autistic child to see their children beat down to severe exhaustion and to quit their jobs or to turn over their retirement to help support the this third generation of autism. These are courageous soul journeys. And each of you listening right now are somewhere in that mix, I'm sure. And so my hat is off to you. My deep reverence for each of you, the autistic children that are affected by this show and within this audience, the mothers, the fathers, the siblings. It is very challenging to be a brother or a sister to an autistic child. And I see those siblings so often being the greatest protectors over their siblings. They have an intuitive sense that parents don't have sometimes or or have a different perspective that a parent could never have on how to increase the, the communication capacity and to be a 
to be a conduit of information, to be a translator for their sibling with autism. And so my hat's off to the siblings, to the aunts and uncles, to the cousins, nieces, and nephews. These are family units that are being mobilized around autism, which is telling us something about what we need. We need families to be reunited over important things. Autism is one of these. And so it can be a real gift if seen through that different lens. And so I hope that each of you can start to look through that lens because there's going to be a daily tendency, especially for the male brain, to think that you're failing, to think that you're not doing enough. I want you to know that you're doing everything you can possibly do, and it is enough. It's enough for your child. Even if it looks like that child has none of the support that you would wish for, it has none of the social or educational support you would wish for that child, uh, you know, maybe you've gone bankrupt. Maybe you've lost everything. Maybe you just lost your home this year. You lost your job this year. Everything that has unfolded is on purpose. It's for the extremity of the experience of doing what you're doing right now, for experiencing exactly what you are experiencing right now. It is enough. You are enough. If you are broken right now, you are called to be broken right now. Your soul signed up for a journey into brokenness right now so that you can put yourself and your family and your child back together in a different model soon. And that's the promise of brokenness, is that if you hold on with curiosity and a spirit of co-creativity with the universe, energy will flow to you. If you can let go of the tendency that we all have to shift into the victim mentality of why me, it's, there's no way out, it's hopeless, it's helpless, that's your human mind acknowledging that there is no human solution here. And I want you to feel that and know that there is no human solution for your child. There is no human solution for you. There is a spiritual calling for your child and for you. And you've stepped into it and you are enough. And isn't a big part of that to surrender to that concept? You know, because you can't just mentally embrace it. It's deeper than that. That's probably the answer to life itself right there is, you know, there's the, the cliff notes to a successful life is surrender motherfuckers. Like it's that intense. Like, you know, I, I can't put enough English language around the word surrender to tell you how important it is and, and everything else in my own life. I, I have had to surrender everything, including at moments of my life, surrendering the belief that I could be a, a parent at all. I saw a moment in time where I felt like I was losing my kids. I was losing everything I ever thought I was living for. And I was in a massive state of hopelessness, a massive state of desperation. I was in sheer panic, fight or flight state. And it was those same children that I thought I was losing that put me back together again. And what was happening is I was fundamentally changing my relationship to my kids and they were becoming adults at young ages, and they were becoming souls on purpose, uh, not under the influence of Zach. And that's a, re a relief. See if you can cut your children out from under the influence of you, because they came here not to be your child. They came here to be a soul on purpose, to light this world up. And so the sooner at a youngest age possible, you can, as a parent, realize you are being called to be witness to these children not to really parent these children, not to control the environment for these children, not to be their pathway. You are here to be witness, celebrate, see the beauty in your children and surrender them to the universe. What energies are going to come to them outside of your influence, outside of your careful OCD 
you know, effort for control of their environment because you want to protect these children that seem so injured. I'm not even convinced they're injured. I see children go from non-speaking to speaking without ever having to learn how to talk. So it's not like their brain has been damaged. These autistic minds are doing something in a realm that we don't understand at the neuroscience level. We don't understand at the spiritual level. These children are here doing something that is so mysterious and so bizarre. Surrender to that. Trust in that. Trust in the mystery of what your child showed up to do in their nonverbal state, in their maybe pre-verbal state or verbal state or their post-verbal state, whatever stage, understand that the, the weak and, and you know, vulnerable five senses that we attribute to the human is scratching the surface of what we can really sense and what we can really do. If we start working biophotonically towards one another to heal one another, to heal the spiritual journey of humanity as a whole, that's what these children are here to do. They're here to heal the journey of humanity as a whole. And so if we surrender into that, and we've witnessed, I mean, we witnessed that firsthand, what you're talking about. And as soon as we kind of got over our own shit that we were doing and judging and correcting and just let Rye be, like, you know, Rye taught himself how to read. <laughs> Basically, yes, we had speech, but taught him speech, but then taught himself multiplication. Like, he just innately knows so much that as much as we're empowering him to be that best version of himself, and, you know, yeah, he came through me, but he's here for his own reason. It's our job to support him to really thrive. And that's what, you know, our intent is for uh, the parents that we support is to help empower them so they can basically help their child thrive so they can then do whatever they're here for. Like, what is those gifts that they're here to really shine for humanity? Rye is such a good example of a reorienting force, right? It's not too often that, or not too uncommon that we're in the exam room together and he's in the room. We're having a conversation. I can start talking to Rye and we can have a fun conversation. He'll usually tell me something I've never even heard of or imagined. He's got some, so many brilliant little aspects of his knowledge base that blow my mind. And then we'll kind of fall into a natural kind of human adult conversation and then Rye will just have enough of that. He's just like, this conversation needs to go a different direction. And he will interrupt us and he will take us in the direction we just had not been going. And if we back up for a moment and, and realize that Rye's sense of the perspective of a conversation is has nothing to do with the information traveling through our words. His, I think he is seeing that group of his parents, a doctor, in a space that he feels safe. It's much more similar to something like church. It's a fellowship experience. He's there for the spiritual experience of being in fellowship in a safe space where he knows his parents are being supported and he can see that support and he's glad for that. He feels seen and he doesn't often seem feel seen maybe by the world. And so this is what he is experiencing in that space. He's not there for Zach's words. He's not there for to hear his parents' questions. Mm -hmm. Couldn't care less, really. He knows that the questions are missing the mark. He knows my answers are nowhere near the mark. But he knows that we care and we love each other. And he wants to see the three of us loving each other and embracing each other on this journey of humanity. And he's almost orchestrating that. Like, uh, okay, you guys are taking this way too freaking seriously. Let's lighten this moment. I'm stepping in. <laughs> Shake up the room. All right, there's the levity back. Everybody's laughing again. All right, you guys do your thing for a few minutes and he'll shake us up again the moment we start taking ourselves or 
our perspective on the situation too seriously because we don't have it. We don't have the answers. We don't have the perspective. We're so two-dimensional because we've been trained out of it. We've been forced to let go of our intuition. We've been forced to let go of our, our real sense of self. And so Rai is a joy to as a reorienting force. And so in your family, it's interesting to imagine a situation where uh, the child is suddenly seen as a, a reorientation force instead of a disruptive force. Yep. No, no, no doubt. We see that he's the teacher. And I know going back to my frame of mind, initially, I thought I was going to kind of parent the autism out of him, right? To kind of teach him and to figure things out. And, you know, I think now I've landed where all I am, I could be a really super helpful and loving guide, right? I could be there an ally, but I don't have the answers. I know he's teaching me much more than I'm teaching him. And that just presence and that connection it does outweigh everything else because he sees right through the words. He sees through all that. You're absolutely right. And and I guess the question is, how can a parent kind of get that concept even more? Because it's one thing to hear it, but I mean, we have been trained our whole life to strive and to keep going and to keep pushing. How, how does one, other than meditation or something like that, how does one put that into practice? <laughs> Yeah, I, the I mean, the answer is it's a lifetime practice to to move that that in. That's not something that you throw a flip a switch on. I don't think. I, I hope. I would love to think that we can get to a place as humanity that we could throw the switch and just be in a high consciousness state and be connected to source at, at the kind of level that these children come into the world with. But assuming it, it, it remains a lifelong journey as it has been for for our two hundred thousand year history as Homo sapiens. The journey into that is, you know, you mentioned meditation. I think the whole purpose of meditation and mindfulness, obviously, is to come present in the moment. And to come fully present is one of, it's another way of saying absolute surrender. You have to surrender everything that's ever happened and everything you hope to happen to be completely present right now. And that's ultimately your calling, right? It's fascinating that what I just described sounds impossible unless you're four years old. And that's just how you live. When you're four, that's what you do. You actually don't stake anything on the past week. That's why we have so few memories of before kind of age five or six. It's because we haven't yet learned how to hold on to the past. And so we don't. And we're just speeding forward. The amount that we will learn in those first couple of years, we learn language and we learn you know patterns of behavior. We learn emotional communication, all the complexity of what we're learning demands full attention be fully present right now and do not you know for a moment look back there is no nostalgia in a four-year-old you know i'm i'm struck by you know i just had an all-staff meeting a few minutes ago and and all of these adults reflecting on what do i love about the holidays or what you know what are the, the my favorite memories maybe that's good but it's not what we did before we learned how to hold on to the past we made those memories by being fully present and so if we're going to be fully present this Christmas, what are we going to let go of? You know, it doesn't mean the past disappears or is irrelevant or is unloved or uncared for. It just means it's not relevant to today. And so, and if it is relevant, it's relevant in ways we can't understand. And so it's, it's different than trying to cling to that experience in the past to have a new experience today. We have to let go of all of that so that the magic that created those memories becomes possible to recreate today in a new fashion for a new future for a new memory today that would be just as ingrained in our experience in our soul journey as that four-year-old was under the christmas tree or whatever it is that you're remembering and so 
come fully present and surrender the past. Try to let go of your emotional memory because it's the most traumatic thing that we have. Uh, the emotional part of the brain wraps around the memory center in the brain. So all we have is short-term memory in the brain. We haven't ever found a hard drive in the brain. We don't have a, a long-term memory storage in the brain, which is really weird. It seems to be stored peripherally. And so we seem to store all of our long-term memory out in our fascial planes, perhaps, which are kind of a, a separate neurologic system from our brains and peripheral nerves. It sits right below our skin. It has this weird dynamic, you know, uh, electrical potential within it. And so maybe it's within the fascia, maybe it's within, you know, tissue itself, within the water structure of the tissue itself. These are some of the ideas that are out there right now as to where do we really store memory. But in the brain, when we go to access that, we usually access it through the emotional cortex of the hippocampus. And so the memories you are going to recall easily are those that are wrapped in emotion. That's why nostalgia or trauma or fear or guilt tend to become the dominant memories of our life. And it tends to define the narrative that we tell about ourselves, which of course dumbs our down, our experience down radically, right? I'm so fascinated by the fact that we were neurologically wired to experience right now and not to remember the past very well, you know. But, you know, it's crazy because Rye can remember dates. He can remember basically everything. Hey, do you know where we were on November 12th? That, you know, like... 2000 and and you're just like how do you do that and that's part of these part of the gifts that these kids have that and it's you know and it's funny because sometimes he'll tell us stuff when he wasn't even talking like you're just like how do you remember we had that conversation but yeah it's mm -hmm. it's truly amazing and, and tell me this is because this is fascinating with rye but tell me if i'm wrong but from what i've heard from him over the years he never tells me an emotional memory he tells me on November 12th, we were here and we were doing this thing and there was no emotion attached to this thing. We just happened to be driving on this road and I saw this sign. True. True. And even if something was like when he fell and had to get stitches, it, he, st he states it matter-of-factly versus, and he doesn't cry like getting stitches. There was an event that occurred. Yeah. Yes. On yes. December 1st, I had stitches and I was in the emergency room and the doctor was wearing a blue hat. I don't know why he was wearing a blue hat. But then he also had like the stitches were actually in this little package that had this cellophane thing. Like he's so damn specific about his memory. Right. And the route we took to the hospital. And the route you took to the hospital. I mean, it's that, that <laughs> level of exquisite detail. And so the thing about Rye that strikes me is he has learned to, or he has never forgotten how to access the knowledge field. When we are trained into an emotional state of knowing or an emotional state of experience and therefore an emotional state of memory, we forget all the details because we can't really store that memory until we access it via an emotion. And if we start to define our narrative experience that way, each emotion lasts biochemically about seven seconds, and then it has to be re-triggered to last any longer than that. And so what we're doing is we're taking these snapshots that are then warped by the emotion itself. Uh, they've done this a lot with eyewitnesses, right? You know, a crime happens and there's a car involved and you ask 32 witnesses and you'll get seven different colors of that car. And so it wasn't a black car, it was a red car. And half of them saw it as a white car. And it, it turns out it was a blue Honda. Nobody knew it was a blue Honda. There was people that thought it was a Chevy. Some people even thought it was a pickup truck. Like it's unbelievable how inaccurate, even in a big dramatic situation, our perception is because it's being coded by 
emotional filters that screw up the reality that we're actually experiencing. And so what are the emotions, mom and dad, today that you are experiencing that are screwing up your perception of your child or your perception of your child's journey or your perception of what that journey should look like or your perception of what the journey has been? Your emotions are screwing it up. And that's really, you know, sounds like an asshole thing to say, frankly, from some guy who doesn't have an autistic child to say that to a parent that doesn't. Like, how am I supposed to do that journey without emotions? No, the emotions should happen. They are natural. And they're actually holy. They're divine capacities of the human experiences to have emotion. And so I don't want to say that you should do it without emotion. I I want to say that there's an opportunity for you to disconnect the emotion from your entire narrative. Dive into the grief. Don't push the grief away. Hold on to that whole experience, all five layers of grief. If you haven't read the five layers of grief, please read those. You have to read those as a parent of an autistic child because you're going to grieve over and over and over again because change is always going to be happening. Change is going to happen to the friends you thought you had. They're going to, you're going to have to change the social group you thought you had. You're probably going to change the church you thought you had. I mean, it's going to get that intense where there's not an area of your life that's not going to change because of this autistic reality within your life. And in all of that change, you're going to have to grieve. We, we think of grief being associated with trauma and loss, but in fact, change itself requires that whole whole journey. And my wife has done a really good Instagram live recently on this with a woman who does a lot of grief trauma uh, counseling. And, and, and so understand that the changes in your life are inducing those grief patterns and to be present with those emotions. Don't push them down in the base of your lungs where you tend to store unresolved grief and then lead to all kinds of trauma, breast cancer and lung cancer and lung COPD, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, you know, chronic respiratory issues, blah, 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 all from unresolved grief. So don't do that. we got to let that out. But then to have the discipline to try to find the quiet space within your body. And it's commonly down like in the floor of the pelvis, like this safe, there's an energetic space where your soul sits down near the, the center of your pelvis. And in that space, if you can learn to access that, there is no emotion. Emotions happen up in these high energetic centers up top, up in your chest. And so sinking out of those emotional centers to become centered into that soul space and say, I am here. I am enough. Okay, let's start with that. I am here. I am enough. And there is no emotions in this space. And what is the narrative that's real? And start to tell your narrative from that soul space instead of the emotional chest or the mental you know, brain. Those are dangerous places to tell your narrative. It's a dangerous place to program your child into with the narrative they're playing out. And so it's a very important thing because codependence is bred very quickly if you're up in your headspace or heart space with this journey and you will become codependent with that child that has been labeled as disordered or labeled as diseased, that child, the perception of that child leads to the belief that you need to plug in all kinds of you around that child to complete them or to protect them. And you've now stifled their whole energy field and who they are trying to become. And so having that energetic distance of, I honor you, I revere you, you are the teacher, I am the student, sitting there as you guys have talked with Rye, Those are daily exercises because the world is telling you the opposite. Every second, the world is telling you the opposite. You're responsible. There's nobody else going to help. You have to do everything. You have to educate your child, solve for the the emotional and social deficits in that child's life. 
it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I can't imagine as a parent, I can't imagine the journey you all are on as parents of autistic child. I, I, my soul wasn't, wasn't on that journey. And I, I'm tempted to say, I'm, that wasn't a courageous enough, you know, I wasn't courageous enough maybe to take that journey, this, this cycle around. And so I think you have a courageous one. <laughs> you have your own courageous journey. Different, different courageousness. And I don't, I see it as, um, I see it as on, on its knees. My soul is on my knees to each of you as souls. Your journey is, is of the bravest and, and highest calling. And it's separate from your child's and, and it's separate from your child's and it's separate from your child's. And so um, you guys, I think, are leading the charge with this podcast, with your own experiences to say, as a community, we need to start to support one another at the parent level, at the sibling level, at the parent and grandparent level. We need to support one another to break the cycles of codependence and emotional memory to become totally present right now, to learn what we must learn from autism so that we can move forward and not see a generation with one in three with autism because it's no longer necessary because we learned and we found out what we needed to. And the autistic children rose as a group, as a population, to teach humanity what we needed to learn from them. And if we're listening carefully and we pivot quickly, there won't be a need for a higher burden of this disorder in our in our communities. Now, that's absolutely beautiful. And, uh, and it does, it all comes down to just presence, acceptance, and it's a practice every day to just do your best and to get better and better at that. Cause it is, we know it's not a switch that you flip, but it is a practice that you can cultivate just to become just more allowing and accepting to what is. And it's amazing when you do be able to shed and become present, how connected your children then become. So where Rye started to where Rye is now night and day difference. So he's doing everything. Everyone limited him telling us he couldn't do. We have clients who, you know, same thing with their, children who basically were told they were broken and now their kids are social, they're connecting, they're asking parents to hold hands together and take a family walk. You know, so things that, so it's not, you know, don't listen to the limitations of others. Know in your heart, but I loved how you said, you know, it's not thinking with your brain or thinking with your heart. It's also checking in with that sacral space to really what is best as I move forward. I think, uh, you know, it's such a beautiful description that you just did there. And I also want to honor both of you and what I've seen, because over the years of witnessing your family, I think it's maybe been six years or something now, I have to say in a weird way for all of the strides that the world recognizes in Rye, he's the only one that hasn't changed. I think the two of you have come light years in the light you bring into the world the passion for humanity and, and other parents that you bring, the traumas that you've released from your bodies and your minds and your spirits, the sense of overwhelm that you were in when I first met you is gone. Like you guys are doing, making bold decisions. You guys are making extremely courageous decisions for your family to uproot, sell your house, rent, get on the road, take the family on a journey. Those are huge things for any family to decide and to see you guys doing that journey. I, I can't wait for the road show. I can't wait for Rye to come into communities and uh, shed his knowledge and, and light into communities all over the country as you guys go on the road. I, I'm, and I'm not holding you to that. Maybe that's not the next step. But you know, there's, there's just this sense of you guys are blowing the doors off of what a whole family has been told they could or couldn't do 
with an autistic child in the midst. And so not only is Rye finding his freedom, your family unit, and therefore your community around you, the extended family, the spiritual community, the larger, you know, autistic community is going to watch the doors blow off as you guys become more and more joyful in your co-creative process. And Rye will find out was the conductor the whole time. And he saw the whole path and he didn't need to change. He just needed to be heard a little bit better at times, but he didn't need to change because he already was connected to source at a level that uh, for generations, your family has forgotten. And you guys are reconnecting to a memory of who you are for reals and what you're really here to show up and do. And so I honor both of you as much as I enjoy Rise journey. I have, um, I've seen exponential growth in the two of you and I've learned much from that. So thank you for teaching me. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And we know that our change could never have happened unless we curated our environment and surrounded ourselves with people who did allow us to see things differently, who gave us that support, which is why we drive four hours to come visit you at the M clinic and to experience the wonderful people there in your practice, because it is that right support of who you have around you makes a huge difference. Cause otherwise every parent I think starts in isolation. I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to coordinate. I'm not going to be part of community and the power is in the community and the people who you allow in. And there's no question uh, you have absolutely been a beacon of light for us. And we can't, from the bottom of our hearts, we couldn't thank you more strongly. So thank you very much. Beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be in a star field of human souls. And uh, it's one of them out there. So uh, I'm delighted to be shining in, in the same universe you're living in. And uh, each of you are a joy. So thank you for, for your journey and, and the vulnerability in sharing that journey with the, the groups of people around the world through this podcast is uh, a real service. So it's something that uh, only parents of an autistic child can open up and uh, have this level of vulnerability and, and show a journey that uh, few would want to share. So thank you for your courage and, and your vulnerability and transparency in the journey. Want to learn how to avoid the 33 mistakes most autism parents make? Get your free training today. Visit AutismParentingSecrets.com slash unstoppable.